This is God's word. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And John 2, 13 to 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Lord, uh, we gather here today and we... Uh, we hear the, the word of, from your mouth and uh, meditate what we just read. We ask that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, um, you would help us to understand what you would say to us today. You would help us to be open and receptive to whatever it is you want us to learn, whatever transformation you want to affect in us, that you would meet us in this place and at this time and with these people. You would help us to know your love, to love you more, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. So, 
The John passage we read today is an interesting one. Um, in my experience, there are a lot of texts that we can hear over and over and over again, uh, certain verses of the Bible that, even though they're kind of shocking, if you really dig into them, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, or even John 3.16, which you can't escape anywhere. It was stamped into a on-ramp hillside the other day in Rockland. Um, I don't know who did that, but... Uh, you know, these texts are pretty surprising what they say, but they sound nice. And if you hear a nice passage often enough, it kind of starts to lose its impact. You tune out when you hear it. Um, we just kind of say, you know, I've, I've heard this one before, I'm familiar. And then I think today's text, I keep looking like it's going to be up there, uh, is different because Jesus is angry and he doesn't seem nice. We, we have, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but I think very often we have this idea that Jesus is primarily a nice guy, that he's, he's a nice Christian boy, um, you know, he... <laughs> He always, you know, is respectful to everyone. He, he, you know, just, he's very polite. And that's really the best you could say. <laughs> so, we have this idea. And Jesus here is not being nice, right? He's angry. It says he makes a, a whip out of cords he finds in the temple and drives out the, the livestock. He points at the dove sellers and says, get out of here. He says, you're, you're turning my father's house into a marketplace? Like, what does he have against doves? You know, I, this is not what we expect from Jesus. So this one always stands out. This one, I think, where Jesus curses the fig tree, which is, you know, in the same story of Jesus clearing the temple occurs in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And very often it is linked in those texts, not in John, but in the others, it's linked to the cursing of that fig tree. And these are the parts people say, what is Jesus up to here? Why is he angry? Um, I think, you know, that the answer is that we're wrong to think that anger and goodness don't sometimes go hand in hand. You know, there, there's a time and there's a place in which anger is justified and it's called for. Um, in fact, Jesus is in a long line of, of a prophetic tradition that we find in the Old Testament um, of prophets who speak about the temple being abused. Uh, in Jeremiah, uh, quite a bit of the book is taken up with the prophet telling the people, you, you're abusing the temple, you're doing the wrong thing, and you think you can get away with it because you're offering sacrifices. Uh, we find this uh, throughout the prophets. I think there are two... Well, there, there's an issue that we have when we, when we read this text, though, I think. Because we don't have a temple. We don't have this place that is so central to our identity. We don't have the place that we think is the center of our religion for us to abuse. And so it's, off, it's easy to read this passage and say, these people were being bad, but at least I'm off the hook on this then because I don't have a temple. I can't do the same thing as them. But it wasn't really about the abuse of a building. It was about the abuse of religion, the abuse of their faith, um, the abuse of their idea of God. I think that there are, I think this is a very relevant problem for us, and there are two ways in which people at that time were abusing the temple, and two way, the same two ways that we abuse it. Uh, the first would be that we have a tendency to break our lives into the sacred and the secular, 
to, to, to segregate out little parts of our lives and think of this is the religious aspect and this is the normal aspect. And I think the second temptation is to try to use the temple, to try to use religion, to try to use God as means to our own end. So let's look first at the, the sacred secular um, breaking up. The, the, the purpose of the temple, as far as we can tell, is it was meant to be a place where God would, would, it would symbolize God's presence in the middle of God's people, in a tangible location. It was, this is a building in a real place that would show up on a real map, surrounded by real people living in real neighborhoods, where it was thought that God dwelled in a special way. It was, it was symbolic that God was with God's people. Uh, it was a place to go and, and encounter um, God in a special way. And the temple was central to uh, the Israelites' religion, to their culture, to their, their yearly life. Um, three times a year, uh, the people were expected to come to Jerusalem, which was the home of the temple, um, come up for a week for three different festivals. So they would come to these festivals and... and uh, the, our best guess um, is that the, the purpose of these three festivals was to set a rhythm of people's lives. That they would come to the temple and they would worship in a special way and be surrounded by other people worshiping in a special way. And the point was to reorient them, to recalibrate them back on track to the way of life that God was calling them to. That it was supposed to be something that they go to and take home with them. Something that in that in-between time they would continue to live as they've been impacted at the temple. That they would treat their neighbors justly. They would care for those who don't have what they need. They would avoid um, abusing others. They would avoid abusing the land. They would avoid um, just taking advantage of other people. And they, they would live out this, this temple time the rest of the year. It was meant to set a pattern for them. In the same way that Christmas comes around for us and we think... You know, this is the time, what, everyone, you know, in, in America, it's become an American holiday. Christmas becomes a time of, of, of good spirit, of uh, generosity to others. It's a time of year where you might find somebody paying for somebody they don't know, a stranger's meal at a restaurant. Um, it's a time when people think to donate to charity. Um, you know, it has this kind of impact. And in the same way, these festivals at the temple, the temple life was supposed to impact their life. It's supposed to remind them of who they were and the type of life they were called to. But very often, we find that it had the opposite effect. That it didn't shape the rest of their life. It was a separate, discrete part of their life. It was on their to-do list. It was, it was the religious section. And they could go through and tick off the boxes. Okay, I went for the Feast of Booths, so I'm good with God for the next four months. Uh, I can pretty much do whatever I want in the meantime. You know, I'm uh, within, within reason, you know, I'm not going to murder anybody, but other than that, I can pretty much do what I want to do. Um, we find this in, again, in the book of Jeremiah, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, there's a passage, it's really moving. He, he talks to the people and says, you are oppressing foreigners, you're exploiting widows and orphans, you're mistreating the poor, and you think this is okay because you have the temple. Because you have these rituals where you can go and be religious and you think that this is going to please God. He says, in fact, that their refrain is, the temple, the temple, the temple. So they just, when, they're, when someone comes and tells them, you need to change your way of life, they say, we have the temple. 
we're okay, we have a means to God, we, we can check off the religious box and we're all right. What they're doing is they're breaking their life up into sacred and secular. There's a part of their life that belongs to God and a part of their life that belongs to them. I think this is a very real experience for all of us today in a couple of ways. I think on the one end, it has to do with whether or not we examine all of our life in light of faith. Um, I think it's easy for us to develop our own sense of religious practices, of what, what is the religious part of my life? What is the spiritual part of my life? Am I, you know, if, I, if I'm reading the Bible several times a week, if I'm praying before every dinner, um, if I make it to church three Sundays out of four, um, if I you know, sponsor a child through World Vision or Compassion International, you know, if I do these things, you know, maybe if I adopt a practice for Lent, maybe if I give something up for Lent, if I do these sorts of things, I'm really I'm meeting my requirements, I'm meeting what God is asking of me, and I can pretty much do what else I need. I don't need to think about you know, what, what does my faith ask of me when it comes to the pressure I put on my children? What does my faith ask of me when it comes to you know, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I talk about people that have, that have upset me? Um, you know, how I do my work? I think that these, all these areas can go unexamined and not necessarily out of you know, wanting to disobey, but we just feel like life, that there are these religious parts of life, and if we meet those, that's what God cares about. Which, I think that this, this root problem often is that we don't realize God cares about all of life. I mean, maybe we know that up here. Maybe intellectually we're aware of the fact that God cares about all of life. But I'm not sure that always sinks in. I think very often we have the sense that you know, God is involved and God cares when you're talking with people at a Bible study. Maybe God cares, probably not, when you're talking to your neighbor at the mailbox. You know, we have this, this thought that if I can fill my calendar with church events, then God definitely recognizes that. God sees that. But if I'm at home, you know, making dinner for my family or making dinner for somebody who's coming over, if I'm doing the dishes, you think, you know, does this really matter to God? And the fact is that all these parts of our lives are dearly of concern to Jesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in the text today where Jesus says, well, I'm sorry, not Jesus, uh, where John, the writer, says, Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. Now, that would have been a very remarkable sentence in the ears of first century Jewish readers, the temple of his body. Because the temple wasn't of his body, the temple was the temple. Um, but this idea is, is very strong in the New Testament. It keeps coming up. That Jesus is the true temple. And what it's talking about is the, the Christian doctrine of incarnation. Now, for some of us, incarnation is going to be a word we've grown up with, we've heard over and over. Some of us might be hearing it for the first time today. But it basically means to be in the flesh, to be embodied. Uh, I remember the first time it ever clicked with me was when I learned, you know, in Spanish, carne means meat. And it basically means in the meat. Um, that, that, you know, God, the Son, 
the, the, the doctrine of the incarnation, that God the Son became a human, actually took on human flesh, actually like, was made of meat like we are, uh, that God did all of this, that God became one of us to dwell among people in a specific place, in a specific time in history, with specific neighbors. You know, it, it's so easy for us 2,000 years later to be removed and to think, you know, it's kind of an abstract concept that Jesus was God and man, but, but it wasn't an abstract construct at the time. Uh, for the people, the disciples who had met him, the people who were in the New Testament, this was the real guy they'd met. They'd shaken his hand, you know, they had probably, like, caught a whiff of him when he wasn't smelling so good after walking all day. I mean, he was a human being. He was the true temple in this way. He was God literally dwelling, embodied among the people. And this has a lot of repercussions. This has a lot of meaning for Christians. This has a lot of just impact on our life. But one thing to focus on in particular uh, has to do with him taking on the fullness of humanity. Uh, in the early church, there was a, a debate for a while over whether or not when God became a human in Jesus, did he become... Uh, I'm sorry for referring to God as he repeatedly. I wish we had a personal non-gender pronoun, um, and it doesn't feel right. Uh, so I'm going to say he for right now. But, you know, that, that God... It, the question was, when God became a human... Did God take on just? Did God take on a human body, like an actual human body, or did God take on the appearance of a human? Did God just look like a person? They said, "Well, God definitely took on a human body." That was, you know, they came. The people who had met him said, "Like, yeah, he ate fish and it didn't pass through him. You know, didn't just drop on the ground like he was some sort of hologram. Um, Like, you know, he's he's a person. He has a body." And so they said, "Okay, we can accept that, but did he have a human mind?" And this became actually an interesting debate for a while. There, there are a lot of documents that aren't always that interesting. But they're, they're arguing, you know, which is it? And, and the thing that won the day, I mean, they, they had a lot of reasons for this. But eventually they realized any part of humanity that Jesus didn't take on himself, that God didn't take on himself, was a part of humanity that God had not worked to save, that God hadn't worked to redeem. Because they, their belief was that by taking on humanity... God was basically infiltrating humanity. He was, he, was, he was bringing divinity into humanity. And any part of a human that wasn't touched by that was a part that wasn't saved. The, the famous line was, that which he did not assume, he did not save. Um, but, but the importance of this was that if God took on every bit of humanity, if God became truly human like us, then every aspect of human life is of concern to God. That every part of your day, every part of your week is a concern to God. And that can be read, of course, as like a, a fairly scary thing. You know, like, oh, shoot, is God mad that I slept in a little bit? Is, you know, I don't think that's what we're supposed to take away from this. I think the idea here is that God cares about every aspect of your life. You know, I think, I, hopefully it's not such a problem here. I know that in some ways I kind of grew up with a thought sometimes. I knew it was wrong, but I kind of believed it. You know, like, the really good Christians do incredible things, like, they move to a foreign country, and they give away everything, which that might be what you're called to do. Um, but, you know, it was this idea, that, like, they, they, your whole life was wrapped up in church work. You know, that is what it would look like to be a really faithful Christian. And instead, 
we find that, no, Jesus became a human, and Jesus was the son of a carpenter, right? He, Joseph was uh, his stepfather. He raised him. He grew up with carpentry, too. That, that all types of work matter to God. Whether you're a doctor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're a mid-level administrator, your work matters to God. Uh, there's, a, there's a great quote from Martin Luther going around social media right now, so you might have encountered it, but it has to do with him encountering a cobbler, a shoemaker, who asked him, you know, what is the duty of a Christian cobbler? And he said, the duty of the Christian cobbler is not to put little crosses on the shoes. He said, the duty of the cobbler is to make good shoes. Because God cares about craftsmanship. God cares that these shoes are going to be on somebody's feet. Yeah. You know, I think, for me, it makes me think of kind of a modern example that, you know, what is the duty of a Christian driver? You know, I would say the duty of a Christian driver is to drive responsibly, to drive carefully, to drive courteously. It is not to put a Christian bumper sticker on your car. You know, I'm not saying the Christian bumper sticker is necessarily wrong, but if you slap that on there and you drive the way so many of us drive, well, for one thing, you're not communicating a good thing about the gospel. But, but that does not redeem your car. You know, wearing, wearing a branded Christian shirt, that can be fine, but that isn't what it means to... to to live out your faith in everyday life. We don't have to stamp a little cross on everything in order to make it matter to God. You know, when you're, when you're doing the dishes, when you make a casserole for somebody who's had surgery, when you offer a cup of water to the utility guy who's working in your backyard, when you uh, let a car into the lane in front of you in traffic, you know, these are things that God cares about. God's there in the midst of this. Uh, you know, if you are... You know, like I said, any type of career, whatever you're working in, whether you're, you're unemployed and looking for work, these are things that God cares about. It isn't just a matter of, you know, am I right now at church doing something that looks like ministry? Sorry, I got caught up in that. And, uh... <laughs> so, Okay. So let's move to the, the second temptation then, which is abusing the temple, abusing religion, um, abusing God for our, as means to our own end. Now, a, a little bit more backstory on the temple. Um, the temple at Jesus' time was a very impressive building. It hadn't been about 100 years earlier. Um, it had been a pretty worn down, small building. Um, it had been built by people who had limited resources as they came back from uh, being in exile. But uh, under Herod the Great, who was the ruler of that little chunk of land in the Roman Empire, he had started this huge renovation project of the temple and basically replaced it stone for stone, uh, made it beautiful. And we know, and this isn't from the biblical text, this is from a lot of other historical texts, that Herod's motivation was, one, to curry favor with the people that he was ruling. He wanted them to look up to him and to respect him as somebody who put all this money into the temple. Interestingly, he taxed them heavily to pay for the temple, so he wasn't putting his own money into the temple. Um, and two, he wanted this uh, standout building to kind of put him on the map, to put this region on the map. Um, you know, I think in some ways it's familiar. Right now here in Sacramento, it's hard to escape 
um, people talking about how the, the K Street Revival or the New King Stadium or Jeff Koons art or um, you know, the rail yard project with the soccer stadium, how this is going to put Sacramento on the map. And that's not necessarily wrong you know, to do these things to, to help improve Sacramento, but Herod was doing that exact same sort of project for his own sake with the temple. He, was, he, he claimed to be a faithful religious person at that temple, but he was building it for his own sake. He was building it to make a name for himself. Um, he wasn't the only person using the temple in this way. Um, like I said, it, this is under the Roman Empire, and so the building of a big temple like this would have to be approved by the Romans, and they approved it because they hoped that it would kind of mollify the people. You know, people weren't happy about being conquered, but maybe if they had their temple, they would, it would at least drain off enough of their energy so they wouldn't lead to a violent revolution. Um, you know, the, uh, there were a bunch of aristocratic families connected to the temple. Some of them were priests, some of them were the high priests. Um, and they had financial stakes in the temple. Uh, they had social status derived from their connection to the temple. Um, we find out from today's text that there were people who had taken the outer court of the temple, um, the court of the Gentiles it was called, because it was meant to be the place where people who weren't born within the nation of Israel could still come and be welcome in the, the house of Israel's God. Um, the people had come into that court and they'd made it into a marketplace. That's what Jesus says about it. It was, uh, it was sort of like a bazaar, you know, kind of like what we have going on down here today with the flea market. Uh, there were people selling livestock for you to sacrifice in the temple. There were people changing money because uh, you couldn't use the Roman coin in the temple, so you, you know, had to pay a little currency exchange rate to get the right sort of money. Um, according to some things, there were even souvenir vendors there, so you can just imagine in the, like, my dad went to Jerusalem and all I got was a t-shirt. Um, you know, but, but people had, had commodified the temple. Um, we, there were, we know from other places in the gospel that there were people who would go to the temple and make a big donation and they'd make a big deal out of it. You know, they want everyone to see, like, here I do this. And, you know, we see this type of thing. Um, sometimes at churches you'll find there's a family donating to build a new kitchen, but the kitchen is going to have their family name over the top of it. Um, you know, there are people who would do that. There are people who would go and pray really loudly in there, you know, to impress people with their religiosity. Um, so all of these people were using the temple for their own ends. And I think that there's some very obvious examples of this in our culture. I mean, we see um, televangelists and hucksters pretending to be preachers to get donations. Um, we see politicians who make a big show of their faith because they know they have to do that to get a certain number of votes. Um, you know, we see like some businesses that, you know, kind of brand themselves as the Christian business so that they'll attract the right number of customers. But I think, you know, those are all pretty obvious. They're easy to poke holes in. Um, they're probably not our issues. Uh, I don't, I haven't seen any of you on CBN. Um, you know, but there is a, the same thing happens for us in a more subtle way. You know, I think um, some of us, are tempted to use our faith, to use the church, as a way to, to get approval from other religious people. They think, you know, that if, I, if I'm outwardly religious just enough, if I do the right things, that there are going to be people who kind of, you know, pat me on the back, who look at me and say, you know, what a, what a man of God, what a woman of God. Um, you know, and that's not a bad thing for someone to say, 
but that can become the motivation um, on some level for what we're doing. There are some of us who are a little bit more uh, intellectually bent, who think of you know religion as a and theology as a intellectual exercise, this really complex subject matter that we can master, and then we can impress people that we know about it. Um, for some of us, you know, it might be there might be a certain degree to which we treat church as a way to kind of network and find new business connections. Um, for some of us, church might be, you know, that, that perfect missing ingredient to send the image of a perfect family to the world. You know, the, the kids are always washed and, and well-dressed for school on Monday. And, uh, you know, we were at church yesterday, so that's great. You know, we just to send that sort of message. Um, for some of us, our faith might feel like a, a way to get what we want from God. You know, we might have in our mind that if I do the right things, if I live up to the right standards often enough, then God's going to have to give me the, the promotion or the house or the spouse or the comfortable life that we think we deserve, that we, we really want. Um, you know, we might treat it as a sort of technology to control God. Uh, we might want social prominence. It might seem like, hey, here's a smallish community where I can easily work my way up and, you know, be over a bunch of people. Um, have a bunch of people respecting me. We might look to religion as a way to, to set ourselves apart and to think of ourselves as superior to others. It might be you know, I, that we're superior to those who don't share our faith. It might be that we're superior to people who share our faith, but they do it in a weird way. You know, that those people think differently politically than me, and they share my faith, and you know, I'm just so glad that I'm not like them. You know, thank you, Lord, for not making me like them. In all these ways, we're commodifying faith. We're, we're treating it like a, like a marketplace. Uh, and to this, Jesus says, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. I think it's very easy to look at the last, or for me at least, it's easy to look at the last part and say, stop turning into a marketplace. But there's a lot packed into that, stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Think for a moment about what the phrase, my father's house, conjures. I, I know we come from different backgrounds. Um, for some of us, the idea of your father's house, your parents' house, does not stir up good memories. Um, for some, it might not stir up many memories at all. But I think, on a certain level, we all can resonate with the ideal, with, what, with the thing that we long for my parents' house, my father's house to mean. Um, you know, ideally, this is the place we long for that is a place where we're safe, where we're welcome, where we're loved unconditionally, a place where people generously provide food and drink and shelter and a warm bed for us, a place where we have a role in a family, uh, we know that others trust us and rely on us, and we know that we can trust and rely on them. Uh, you know, this is, I think there's this longing in everybody to have this sort of safe place, this sort of family, this sort of home where you're not, you know, at odds with everybody, you're not fighting with people, you're not struggling, but, but this stuff is just there welcoming you generously. And think about the image of a marketplace. I mean, a marketplace is a place where the sellers are trying to sell at the highest possible price, the buyers are trying to buy at the lowest possible price, everybody's in competition, everything is these... The self-interest balances each other out until you reach a, a common price. Um, 
But, but it's motivated by self-interest, the competition. It's all founded on this idea of scarcity. You know, there isn't enough for everybody, so we have to find the, the right price for each thing. You have to go in with your own self-interest so you'll be taken advantage of. And this is just the opposite end of the spectrum from what we long for in the idea of my father's house, my parents' house. You know, instead of a, a world of scarcity, we want that world of abundance. Instead of having to look out for yourself, of having to have this self-interest to protect yourself, you want a place where you know that people are, are looking after you, where people are generous toward you. You can be generous to them freely and not be afraid of being taken advantage of. And this is, I think, is what's so fundamental here. Is when we turn our faith, when we turn the church, when we turn our sense of God, the gospel, into a marketplace, we fundamentally change it. We have, uh, you know, we have this invitation to come to a faith, to come to the gospel, which says that you are welcome, that you are, you are dearly loved, even though everything wrong you've done is already known. You don't have to keep secrets here. You don't have to keep secrets from God. God knows about these things, and God loves you. That, you know, this is a place of abundance, this is a, place, this is a gift economy. This is an economy of grace where it's not about striving, it's not about self-protection, it's not about self-interest, but it's a place where you're welcome and loved. And when we turn that into, you know, how can I manipulate this situation to get what I want out of it, it totally subverts the idea of what it is. It, it takes something that is a gift and it turns it into manipulation. Uh, it takes something that is, it takes love and it turns it into, you know, uh, an object for self-gratification. And what's amazing here is that Jesus invites us out of that. Jesus said, the world is full of this competition, it's full of, of the striving, the self-interest, but you don't have to do that anymore. This, you know, this isn't something, you don't have to earn yourself your way into my affection, you don't have to earn your way into my love, you don't have to strive but you're welcome into this family, a family that, that has open arms to you, that is waiting with grace for you. And it's not just for you either. Uh, you know, here we find in this text that Jesus is the temple, and throughout the New Testament, that gets developed into this idea that those who are in Jesus become the temple as well. That, that people who have, become, have joined the family of God they're not just reaping the benefits of being the family of God. They now have the responsibility of the family of God. That you are a temple among the marketplace. You're a temple. You're an ambassador of Jesus to everyday life. That just as the gospel offers us this grace and this comfort and this welcome, um, this love, this forgiveness, it says that you become a vessel of that, that, that you're called to share that exact same gift with others. You know, I think uh, there's always an interesting dynamic you see in kids of like some kids invite other kids over to their house, some kids like to go to other kids' house. You know, there's a, a level there of you know sometimes they don't know if their friends are going to be welcome if they if they come to their parents' house. But I think that part of the longing for what it means my father's house, my parents' house, has to do with this ability, this sense that you can invite other people here and they're going to be safe, they're going to be taken care of. They're not going to be manipulated. They're not going to be coerced. Uh, they're just going to be welcomed. And, and that's something that I think we're invited to do as well. That we're invited to, to share um, the love of God's family. We're invited to, to extend this to other people. To 
go into the marketplace. And yeah, there are still market forces where we have to work in the marketplace. But we are called to be a temple ourselves to other people, a place where God dwells in the midst of people and releases love and grace and forgiveness into the world. Let's pray. God, you have... uh, You weren't satisfied to to leave a building as a symbol of your presence, but you chose to to humble yourself and to actually become a human like us, to live among real people and suffer alongside real people and suffer with real people, um, to love people in a way that actually cost you something. And you offer that to us. uh, Pray that we would more and more be able to encounter and understand just what that means for us. The fact that all of our life is lived before you, that it's of concern to you, that, that you notice and you care when we do the mundane, ordinary things of life. That it isn't about putting on a show for you, it's not about putting on a show for others or manipulating the system to get what we want, but that we've been offered a free gift in you, and that we are to share that gift. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves because we know that you've loved us first. I pray that you would draw us near to you, that you would dwell in our midst, and you would help us to be more and more faithful ambassadors of Christ. You would help us to represent your love and your grace, your hospitality, your generosity, among others, among our neighbors, the people would experience a little taste of what you're offering in our own lives. And for those of us who need a taste of that right now, that we would get that. That we would know that we are, we are welcome in your family, that we have a role in your family. Whatever our, our current family situation is, that, that we're not orphaned, we're not left alone, but that we're knit into your community of love and generosity and safety. We ask this in Jesus' name.